Logical, the show where the hosts don't bite, but our subjects just might. My name's Allie, and I am not an expert. And my name's Anna, and I am certainly not an expert. Okay, Anna, I very much need to ask you, come up with something wholesome or happy that's happened recently, because this will be the one bright spot in the episode. Okay, something wholesome that has happened is Lilith has become more cuddly of recent. She likes to crawl under the covers with us and just, like, cuddle with me. And I find that very wholesome. I get a lot of warm snuggles. She gave me kisses this morning. She never gives me kisses. She's mad at me because I brought the dog into the house. Allie thinks that the cat doesn't like her, but that's not true. I I don't know that it isn't true. It might be less true, but it definitely is not not true. She doesn't hate anybody. She doesn't have it within her bones to hate somebody. Her tiny, tiny bones. Her tiny, tiny bones. That are currently hidden in the closet, which we try to tell her isn't very fun, but she doesn't really want to listen to that. I mean, I think the closet is fun. Leaving it is more fun, though. Yes, that is very true. Maybe that's why she keeps going in. Mm. Just so that she can come out again. <laughs> and again, and again. And again. So, um, this is the last episode of our evolution series. Honestly, this part is not about evolution, but about the misconceptions relating to humans and the concept of evolution. The mistreatment of people by those using evolution as a tool. Using evolution as an excuse to mistreat people. That's mm-hmm. that's what this episode is on. Fun. I've, in my notes, called this episode the bad, the bad, and the bad. Ooh, boy. Yeah. It's not great, but like I've said in all the previous episodes, I think it's important that we talk about it. Just to kind of place us, we are both very white, and racism obviously isn't something that we deal with on a constant basis. I understand that there are probably people who listen to this podcast that do deal with it on a constant basis, and if they don't want to listen to this episode, I completely understand. For example, I don't go out of my way to uh, expose myself to a bunch of homophobic stuff because it drives me insane and makes me very angry. As much as we can only talk about it from a scientific and historical perspective, it's interesting to see, as we'll get into after the break, how they still play into our health and actually, in a way, our genetics. But the first thing that I wanted to stress before we get into the nitty-gritty, awful details of this episode is that science has made mistakes. That it has. Yes. The scientific community has messed up. Let's go with that word, other than the words I want to use, but we're still family-friendly, even this episode. (laughs) Science, all it is, is a tool. The scientific community in the past and in some cases in the present has misused that tool and in doing so caused a lot of harm that's difficult for people with maybe less scientific literacy and even some people with scientific literacy but with biases that they want to validate. Uh, Granted, I mean, everyone has biases. Yes, but biases that specifically relate to the topic we're discussing today. They've misused scientific tools and they've misused science as a tool. There's still cases of this ongoing today. For example, One you could think of, probably off the top of your head, it doesn't relate to racism, but anti-vax. That was a relatively recent study that was completely wrong in its methodology and in the use of science as a tool that has been used to cause harm to people. And I mean, the guy who did the study, which concluded that vaccines can lead to autism, which is completely untrue. And the author of the study retracted all of the things that he had said because they weren't good science and they 
weren't. I don't think he retracted it. I think he was. No, the I believe retracted it. No, but I believe he retracted it as well. Okay. Point being, it wasn't good science. It wasn't a true conclusion, and it caused a lot of harm to autistic individuals and those in their lives because well, it continues to cause harm. And it yeah, it continues to cause harm because it has led to a movement of people who, out of fear, are avoiding vaccines that are making people safer and healthier. Yeah. And in a sense, that same misuse of science is happening on a larger but more focused scale when we look at the use of evolutionary theory when applied to concepts of race and racism. Mm-hmm. The first topic that we're going to get into today actually relates to my real major for once. Ooh. So... Like we say at the beginning of this episode, I'm not an expert. Nana certainly isn't an expert. My degree is technically in anthropology, but it's in anthropology, science, and conservation. And even more technically than that, she has avoided learning about humans at all costs and tried to fit in as much monkey facts as possible. Look, I have a goal where I write as many papers as I can on monkeys and not people. Don't let her fool you into thinking that cultural anthropology has anything to do with her degree. It does. I had to take cultural anth, which is where I learned about what we're going to talk about right now. Okay. See, look at that cool segue. You actually set me up for a segue instead of derailing me. So what we're going to talk about first is the idea of evolution when it's being applied to culture, also known as cultural evolution or social Darwinism. Mm. Now, looking up online, I actually saw that culture evolution is beginning to gain new use as a different form of science. Mm-hmm. So in, so social Darwinism is the term that's more commonly associated with what we're talking about now. It's, it's when a guy makes a dumb comment that means he will never get the opportunity to reproduce. No, that is not what social Darwinism means. <laughs> what social Darwinism means, which, as I said, is a misuse of any kind of form of Darwinism, is saying that cultures themselves have an evolutionary hierarchy. Oh, I see. Yeah, so this was started by, if you're in anthropology, our good old friend Hobbes, who is a controversial figure. And he came up with this idea that cultures are always moving towards civilization and industrialization. Now, Anna, do you remember something that we talked about I think it was probably briefly, though I hope it came across with some emphasis at in the last episode. Uh, I'm guessing not the humans ain't special. No, not the humans ain't special, but the fact that evolution never has a goal. Yes. Evolution never has a goal, it just needs to help you survive. So first off, saying that the end point of culture is industrialization is inherently wrong because that's not how evolution works. Also, like, I hate to think that the industrial revolution was going to happen no matter what. I mean, I'm not going to say that there aren't a whole bunch of good things that came out of the industrial revolution. Like the ability to record this podcast? Like the ability to record this podcast. But I am certainly not saying that that was a... The pinnacle of human existence. Or necessarily even a positive move for human existence, because, I mean, we were doing a lot less harm to the planet before then. But anyway, Hobbes, let's just go with the, the standard term and very applicable term, he was racist. For example, in his conversation of social Darwinism, he would describe First Nations cultures and therefore non-industrial cultures, sometimes hunter-gatherer, sometimes less urbanized or centralized cultures, he referred to as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Why short? Like, like, I mean, 
it was a dick enough move to say any of those things. But then also, short? Just... I mean, had to add insult to injury there. Why not? Other lives were short. The kids that got grinded up in the machines at the Oof. Industrial Revolution. Oof. Oof. You want to talk about short lives? This... Uh, I, I know one short life. It's yours because you're short and you have a life. That was sad. Your life is short because it's lived at a short height. My life is short because my anxiety is going to cause heart disease. Anyway, moving on from that, this idea was not immediately panned. In fact, it was expanded upon in 1873 by a man named Morga, and he added the evolutionary stages of culture. Oh, great. And described there as being seven stages. So he kind of more... Let me guess, the last stage was the stage that they were at. Yes, the stage that white Europeans were at. How did you possibly know? So they think that there's no more room for evolution. They thought that they had reached the pinnacle of humanity. Of cultural that, evolution. And that there was no further that they could ever go. No, that everything was perfect. Oh my god. Which, as white European men, they probably what, like, felt like that. What arrogance to assume that you are the end of evolution. That you are the pinnacle. That you've made it. Welcome to all of history. Yeah, just history. I was going to say early, like, 1800s history. No, it still happens. All of history. Anyway, so he put more strict structure onto Hobbes' original theory of cultural evolution, or nowadays more accurately known as social Darwinism, saying that there are the seven stages. There was lower, upper, and middle savagery. Oh, God. Followed by Lower, middle, and upper barbarism. <sighs> and finally, civilization. Which I'd also like to point out. There wasn't any lower, middle, and higher civilization? No, but there's so many more intricacies to just the level. If you want to say civilization is a level of cultural evolution. Yeah, there's a lot of levels there. There's a lot of levels in civilization. Also... Like, I would say that most, I would say that most countries nowadays are what someone in the 1800s would consider to be civilized. But there's certainly a lot of variation in that. I'd also like to point out that from an anthropological perspective, civilization starts about 10,000 years ago. And of course, there is no social evolution. But to say that there hasn't been change and advancement in how we create civilizations in 10,000 years, which is what that statement would imply. Is just plain ignorant. Well, it's just dumb. There's so many different intricacies to civilization as a concept. Like, were they not thinking of, like, Rome and anything else while they were doing this? Like, you just reach... Oh my goodness. Or Mesopotamia versus Gaul villages. Both of those are civilizations in the ancient world. They wouldn't have considered one of those civilizations. Mesopotamia? Great, it was like the first major civilization. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But they would have been racist about it. Oh yeah, well it was in the Middle East. Anyway, so yes. Uh, suffice to say, this was all made by white European men to say that everyone else was lesser than them. Yeah, basically... They... And that everyone else sucked, not just because of their skin color and their race, which we'll get into later, but their entire cultural perspective. It makes me think of when people mess with statistics to, like, make it look like there's a better outcome or there's the outcome that they want. Even when looking at the raw statistics shows you that that is not the conclusion that should be drawn. Yeah, they're just, they're just drawing different circles around so that they can be in the place that they want to be. 
Well, here's the horrible thing, is that though social Darwinism is mostly considered a bad thing... It's not dead. It's not dead. Well, more importantly, it's not dead in some major parts of, dare I say, civilization. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. For example, the big thing I can think of here in Canada is our legal system. Mm, mm-hmm. Our legal system, there's a lot of controversy in First Nations claims about their rights to territory and different practices because the information and the evidence that they bring up is often oral history. Mm. And to say that oral history is less valid than a written historical record is a form of social Darwinism. Mm-hmm. It's hearkening back to that old concept. Well, and also a lot of the pushback for giving indigenous people land is because it's not going to be used the same way that it would be were it not indigenous land. Like, just because somebody isn't building apartment complexes there doesn't mean that it is a less worthy application of the land. Mm-hmm. So we still see, of course, this is an example that I draw from Canada, but there are examples of this all over the world. This is just the one that we have a lot of experience with. And of course, in BC, there's quite a bit of experience with it since there was never a treaty signed here in BC. <sighs> and it's interesting to know that even though people will hearken down on the term of social Darwinism and how, oh, no one, like, that's horrible. Of course no one thinks like that anymore. It's still ingrained in how we deal with different cultures and communities here in Canada mm-hmm. and in different communities across the world. So that is the cultural part that I wanted to first talk about. But the second bit I want to talk about was, you know, just general racism. Oh, 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 lovely. Good old, good old generic brand racism. Mm, so excited. So what did I say about when it came with cultures? What did I say that uh, was the core underlying problem with pulling an evolution as part of that theory? Because evolution has no end goal. That is correct. And the same goes for people. People have no end goal? Yes. Humans as a species, there is no end goal. Yeah, no, if there was, it would probably be a really weird one, too. Yeah. There is no perfect human. I mean, I can think of a few things that would make a perfect human. Like being able to breathe underwater. God. The end goal of humanity truly is to breathe underwater. No, no, it's not. Don't listen to Allie. There is no such thing as an end goal for humans as a species. Yeah, but if it were, it would be to breathe water. May I emphasize the word humans as a species? Would we no longer be humans if we could breathe water? That is not the- can you let me have my point? I had a great segue for this. There is no end goal for the human species. And may I emphasize the use of the word species? Because we are a singular species. In fact, we are a species with less genetic variation than would be assumed for the size of our population. There was a little too much incest. Well, no, it's that we have the ability to interbreed because we have contact. Remember what we talked about with population in the last episode? Uh, Population is individuals that interbreed with each other. Of course, there are isolated populations of humanity, but a lot of us have access to fly or go wherever we want with within reason. There's, of course, social and political barriers to that. But technically, we have the ability to move between places. So there's not really that much of an isolated population. So we're able to, for lack of a better scientific term, interbreed relatively freely. 
And this means that, in fact, we actually have less genetic variation than is seen between population, different populations of chimps. And let me ask you, if I put two chimps next to each other, can you tell the difference between them? I mean, I'm not chimp racist, Al. Of course I can tell. No, I can't. Harkening back to brothers from an evolution, another evolutionary mother, if you put a chimp and a bonobo next to each other, apparently a lot of people couldn't tell the difference. I mean, I don't think I could. No, I don't. What about that that swanky middle part? Oh, right. That's true. I do remember the middle part. The swanky middle part that bonobos I, have? I would never put the fashionable middle part with the uh, unfashionable side part. If you don't know what we're talking about, please listen to episode nine. I think it's nine. Anyway, it's the one about it's the one about bonobos and chimps. Please listen to it. But going back to the topic at hand, that we have very low genetic variation between our species. And it's important to emphasize, despite what racists want to say, despite what phrenology wants to say, despite what any debunked or what should be debunked scientific concept wants to say, we are a singular species. Those people who measure bumps on heads. That's phrenology. Oh, okay, okay. That's what phrenology is. Gotcha. It came up with a fancier name while I was looking the other way. It's always been phrenology! Yeah, but I didn't know that until now. As I was saying, we are all one species. However, that does not mean race doesn't exist. The easiest summary of that, which sounds like I'm about to say something very bad. It doesn't exist in a physical form. Yes. Race is not a scientific concept, but it is a cultural concept. Race is something that... We all have such little genetic variation within our DNA, and we're able to interbreed because that's the definition of speciation, is when you can no longer uh, reproduce and and create a viable offspring. So an offspring that A, can be carried to term, and B, is able to reproduce themselves. Race as a cultural concept does play some important roles, both historically and presently, and actually can affect not our genetic code itself, but how that code is expressed, which we'll get into after the break. First, I did want to touch on some quick and horrifying information of how this concept of humans being different species or there being perfect humans have played up to cause horrible things to happen. Ellie's quick fire talk on eugenics. Yeah, that's what it is. And speaking of eugenics, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Hitler. Yep, that is kind of the prime example. And of course, the first example people come up with for eugenics, trying to A, create a perfect race of people, the Aryan race, which is a concept that should have died very long ago. Unfortunately, people are still getting tattoos of it. A lot of people know the biggest thing that happened, which was the concentration camps and the attempt to eliminate uh, individuals of Jewish descent. And that is what people know of the most as an attempt to create a perfect race or to remove a specific race. Or remove racial features that were less desirable. Yes. But what a lot of people don't know about the eugenics that were going on in Germany at the time, and slightly before the time of World War II, there was a lot of stuff going on with forced sterilization, mm. something they actually borrowed from the United States. And something that still happens very, I want to say illegally, but I mean... It is said to be illegal, but not exacted upon. Exactly. It is something that is still dangerously present in our society yeah. today. And I want to say that this, of course, goes into more of the medical field. And uh, there was actually a great episode of Sawbones, which is 
kind of the show that this is all based on anyway. We're just the animals of sawbones. Or the animals of sawbones? The sawbones for an- of animals? Yeah, the sawbones of animals. You can work it yeah, like that. Yeah, the sawbones of animals. They have a really... I don't want to say wonderful. It's well done. I would I would dare say more in depth. Well, they're looking at specifically at forced sterilization. Yeah. So how it was historically used in the United States, Germany, and I don't remember if they touch on this, but it is and has been used here in Canada. Um, I just want to, again, kind of warn people when they're looking at things like the forced sterilization specifically of people in prison is something that is talked about a lot and is less of a a a slightly less taboo issue which makes it more of a reality and the thing is that that's a dangerous rhetoric that ends up leading to i mean it's a terrible thing in and of itself but it leads to even more terrible things because the thing is that... Well, the funny thing is that actually relates back to phrenology, which you were talking about earlier. Yeah, basically, the way that we treat our prisoners is the way that we will be treating the rest of our society. Behind closed doors. <laughs> Behind closed doors. Because as soon as it's okay to do something to prisoners, like forced sterilization, then it opens the doors to who else is it okay to do this to? And also, who is a prisoner? Mm-hmm. Who Who is a criminal? Well, and that's not even discussing the fact that, quote unquote, criminals are more frequently people of color. So it means that the forced sterilization is not just affecting prisoners, but is disproportionately affecting communities of color as opposed to a general population. Yeah, when you are affecting prisoners, you are disproportionately affecting the most vulnerable of our society. Yes. And that being said, we don't have all the information. Like I said, there's a great episode that Sawbones is doing specifically talking about the current situation in the United States which is current now in October now, October 2020. Hopefully it won't be forgotten about by the time someone's listening to this episode, but there's currently the forced sterilization of immigrants, technically illegal immigrants, but immigrants that have been imprisoned for crossing the American border. And on top of that, forced sterilization, which as we've talked about before in our last episode, we were talking about the mechanisms of evolution, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And kind of like the conversation we were just having about prisoners is when you remove an individual from a population, you remove a level of variation. Mm. So it means that you're getting closer and closer to having less diversity. It's a way of restricting diversity and therefore coming back to that ultimate human concept. Fun, fun. Yes. The other major thing that people will remember from World War II that is highly publicized, but again still occurs today is genocide genocide isn't over (sighs) it's actively happening actively happening and it wasn't just jewish individuals in germany even in world war ii there were romani people that were also being genocided genocided following that there was the bosnian genocide in serbia continuing to happen today the elimination of groups that are considered to be undesirable or outliers well and the just sheer amount of indigenous people that were murdered when canadian settlers came to canada Mm -hmm. well and that's also part of the sterilization as well Mm -hmm. there was widespread sterilization that still continues in some communities today just through a misrepresentation of medical professionals coming in and misrepresenting what the procedures entail and what they mean and also 
the magic of residential schools. I sing because it hurts to say things without any affectation. Additionally, in uh, modern genocide news, Whew. a lot of people aren't aware of things that are happening, for example, in uh, the Rohingya people in Myanmar, which are a Muslim minority group mm -hmm. that are being forced to flee their country because of the persecution they're facing. It's basically a new version of what happened in Rwanda. Fun. So it's important to know that as much as we learn about these things in the history books, they're by no means things that have stopped. And they are things that we need to know about so that we know how to combat them today. And they're things that are much closer to home than we think. Things that have happened here in North America, where a lot of our viewership is from. The other important thing is about all these things happening today is... As much as we think about racism as, as I said earlier, racism as a cultural concept, all these things that are happening and, you know, day-to-day -day racism, you know, that, that everyday racist stuff that people have to deal with. There's bigger words I want to use, but I can't. These are actually causing changes, physical changes that affect the health of people of different minority groups. Oh, lovely. And we're going to get into that, but we're going to get into that after the break. So, the break, I hope it's a little bit more uplifting. It's terrible learning that there are horrible tragedies of racism going on today, but that doesn't... Well, I hope this isn't the first time you're learning that. Yeah, but the thing is that you and I are not powerless to help. There are lots of people who are actively fighting to help the hurt that has been caused. And I wanted to talk about a couple of those groups that you can help with your donation and your volunteering and just spreading awareness of it. And specifically, I wanted to talk about some Canadian organizations because the different American organizations get a lot of attention, but often it's hard to find something that is specifically geared towards helping Canadians. Well, and if you don't mind, there's also this kind of idea outside of Canada, because I grew up in the United States, that Canada's got it all figured out, that we don't have any problems going on here, which is... And we had that discussion in an earlier episode. Yeah, which is very much not the case so yeah. it's to support especially if you are a canadian which i know a lot of our listener base is because it's our family and friends it's our family and friends it's important to of course support other causes if you want to help genocides and horrible things that are going on around the world do it but if you want to find a way to help closer to home then it's i think it's helpful to highlight some organizations that can help you do that the redux is canada is racist that's that's about the long and short of it yes but talking about these organizations. So the first one I wanted to talk about is Circles for Reconciliation. And so this is an organization that specifically focuses on indigenous reconciliation and on awareness and activism surrounding that. So if you've ever heard of Orange Shirt Day or participated in it, it is a day to honor survivors of residential schools and the 
other numerous atrocities done to indigenous well, people. Well, those who didn't survive as well. And those who didn't survive as well. It's meant to bring attention and awareness to that problem. And then they also do tours of sweat lodges and Métis sites around Canada. I know that they have some stuff in Winnipeg that they do, and they have some stuff, I believe, in Vancouver that they do. But yeah, if you look on the website, you might be able to find something near you that is... There's not a lot happening right now, but you might be able to find out some information on what kind of places there are around you that you could visit. Um, and then the second... And do they accept any kind of donations? Yes, both of the organizations that I'm talking about today accept donations on their website. It's really easy to donate. And they also have, I believe both of them have volunteer opportunities. And orange, for the Orange Shirt Day organized, what is it? Circles of Reconciliation? And that is Circles of Reconciliation. And then the second one I want to talk about is called Across Boundaries. And this is specifically, it is more of a kind of resource center. It makes it easy to find mental health support that is specifically anti-racism, anti-black racism, and anti-oppression focused. So they have a focus on people of color and the specific intersections that there are between people of color and their issues with mental health. And they also have specific resources for queer individuals, queer individuals of, of, of color who experience mental health issues. It's, it's kind of a tri-intersection that doesn't get a lot of specific help. This organization is able to provide resources for those that have that specific intersection, and that is a large number of people. So again, that is called Across Boundaries. Another thing I'd like to throw in is, as you've probably learned from this podcast and the fact that I do this podcast in my free time, I'm a big reader and we talk, we've talked about many books I've read in this podcast. But I'm a big reader, and one thing I've been doing is actually reading a number of books on anti-racism concepts. So one that I would really like to talk about, again, since we're focusing on Canada, is 21 Things You Didn't Know About the Indian Act. Mm, yes. And as someone who grew up in the United States and moved to Canada, and someone whose education in Canada was much more globally based than locally based, I hadn't learned a whole lot about Canadian relationships with uh, First Nations individuals and communities since junior high when you do like your little project on it. You do you have your like you spend 15 minutes you learning have about first... the facts the fact that there were a whole bunch of small blocks blankets. Yeah. In uh, in Nova Scotia you have your Mi'kmaq unit and then you never talk about it again and that's it. But this book is actually really wonderful. It breaks down different concepts of the Indian Act and how they are still used today and both the misnaming of like the misuse of words and terminology the struggles about historic the historical struggles about trying to fix the act and the controversy about having an act to begin with and it's written by an indigenous author talking about these concepts and it actually highlighted a lot of stuff that i tried to bring up in this episode as ways that essentially racism is built into the codified relationship with Indigenous people here in Canada. Well, and that brings up an important point, which is, as nice as it is that you guys are listening to us, I think that it's important to look out for the voices of Indigenous people and people of colour speaking out on this issue. It is very simple to find different 
podcasts and books and whatnot that talk about these issues. And yeah, I think that it is important to get it from a perspective that is a lot a lot more closely and personally tied mm-hmm. to the issues than than our our ties. Yeah. As I said at the beginning of this episode, we are both very white and though we can have this conversation from a very scientific and analytical perspective, the day-to-day experiences aren't something that we can speak to and how racism and this misuse of evolution is exacted on a daily basis. Before we go, we should say that as always, if you have any questions, any concerns, any comments, or you just want to say hi, you can email us at Zoological Bites, and that's bites with a Y. That's Z Z O O L O G I C A L B Y T E S at gmail.com. That is where you can reach us. That is where you can email us, and we will give you. I can't promise a prompt response because it's me answering the emails, but I, I can promise you a response in some form. And if and you ask. And cat pictures on request. And cat pictures on request. So the next thing we're going to talk about is uh, epigenetics. Ooh, epigenetics. Is that like genetics, but for people who are allergic to peanuts? N- no. No, it's not. I thought that EpiPens might be related. No. But I want to emphasize that epigenetics is a relatively new field. It just came around when I was in high school. So, well, it didn't just come around, but was just becoming more included in the educational system when I was in high school. So there's a lot of information still coming out about it, still being discovered. And this is just going to be a brief overview of not the exact mechanisms that take place to cause it, because there's a lot of intricacies there and that's not the level that the depth that we get into in this podcast but I do want to talk about how it takes the cultural concept of race and gives it biological consequences fun fun yeah it's great um and to make this a bit lighter I've come up with a real weird scenario uh to explain that would never happen in real life at least not how science not yet yeah not yet basically Um, but I thought it would bring some light to this mildly terrifying topic. So, in this scenario, you have identical twins in vitro. They're in their little petri dish, (laughs) and they're ready to be implanted in a uterus. But these twins are going to be implanted in two different uteruses. Mm. So genetically, they are identical. That's how their genes work. Yes. But they're put into two different people who have uteruses. Yes. And they are born by these people. Like I said, so they have the exact same genotype. If you were to take their genetic code and line it up right by each other, they would be the exact same. Yeah, they both hate peanuts. Yeah, if they both, if their genes said they both hate peanuts, they would both hate peanuts. They, ooh, I, a better one. They both hate cilantro because it tastes like soap. There we go. If the genes, I don't know if this is, let's just go with they both hate peanuts because that's not a real gene. And let's not use real genes in this, because I'm not sure There's how that works. There's a gene that, that hates peanuts, and they have that gene. Which, I again, I'll emphasize, not a real gene. But there is, in this case, in this weird scenario... They both have the peanut-hating gene. They both have the peanut-hating gene. By the fact that these two were born by different women, they are twins. They are identical twins. Yeah, you can't take that away. As, as we would say... In this weird scenario, they would be monozygotic twins, mm-hmm. which means they have the exact same genetic code. Yes. Now, they were, however, built 
in utero yes by two different women with two different experiences and, and two different levels of access to resources for example one of those women what if she ate just like all the fish if she ate all the fish or let's say she literally just has access to fish can't eat a carrot can't eat an apple Yep, she's sitting beside a river and literally all she has is fish and some spring water. And a fire to cook the fish. Yeah, and a bed. Yes. Because I think that's nice. <laughs> but despite the fact that these two children are technically twins, their phenotypes have a chance of being different. Uh-huh, because the other, the other woman ate nothing but peanuts. <laughs> Well, no, the other woman had access to more resources, and because she wasn't having to catch her fish from the river, had potentially less stress in her life while she was pregnant. Because all she wanted was peanuts. Well, because she had more access to resources, and more support, and a less stressful existence. I tell you, this hypothetical lady was eating jars of peanut butter, just with a spoon. No, she was dipping pickles in peanut butter and eating Ooh, that. I, that's going to be me when I'm pregnant. I don't look forward to that moment. And these two twins can actually grow up to live very different lives and have very different phenotypes based on the fact that their birth givers had such different experiences either during their lives or during pregnancy. And a lot of this relates to stress. Mm -hmm. Because in humans, when you look at like pictures of DNA online, they're all in these nice little X's. They're not in X's, they're in ladders. No, no, no. Like the chromosomes, when you're talking about oh, all 23 yeah, chromosomes, yeah, 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 they're yeah. all depicted said, in those. You said DNA, not chromosomes. Well, the, the chromosomes are, are strings of DNA. You know that, right? Right. Anyways, chromosomes. Yes. They're all in those nice little X's. Yes. Well, And they, a Y sometimes. Yes, the one Y occasionally. They're not like that naturally. Naturally, on their own, DNA is just a garbled mess. <laughs> that makes sense. You can see that if you look at prokaryotic cells. Or if you look at DNA. Or if you look at DNA that's replicating. But the way that they get coiled up into those nice little shapes is through the use of methyl groups and histones, which allow the DNA to coil nicely and neatly so it's easier for, when needed, the genetic coding and the whole process of DNA replication, which... We're not and protein building, which we're not going to get into because that's not what this podcast is about, uh, can occur much more easily because it allows them to very easily find the the DNA string that they need to make the object that they to make the thing they need to make. It's like a whole bunch of very nicely organized switchboard wires. Yeah, it's like going through a board or like a filing cabinet. It's a very nicely organized filing cabinet. You can go in, find what you need, take it out, and make it very quickly and easily. It's alleys. It's my filing cabinet. Yeah. My filing cabinet isn't fully labeled right now because I've been stressed. See, it's also like a filing cabinet. When you get stressed, things fall into a bit of disrepair and disorder. But when you get your girlfriend a label maker, it makes everything better. Yeah, well, I haven't been using the label maker because my time has been occupied by dog. Uh, <laughs> Just make labels for Rogue. I'm sure she can read. I actually need to make a label for Rogue because I have to put it on her medical records. Anyway, but what I'm saying is... Stress makes it much harder for these groups to coil and to coil properly, which means it makes it much harder for your system to work properly if you've been exposed to a lot of stress. And it's not just you. It's not if we go back to our, our two twins given birth to by different individuals. By fish mom and peanut mom. By fish mom and peanut pickle mom. There we go. 
those are the two moms. We've got fish mom and peanut pickle mom. Um, they not only will the stress throughout their lives actually affect how their cells work, mm-hmm. but the stress their mother has experienced or the stress that they're the person who gave birth to What about the stress that the fish experienced, Allie? That doesn't play a role in this. Okay, moving on. The stress that their birth giver experienced will actually affect their genetic code. Because when you're being built in the womb, your genes are, your cells are being built for the first time. Mm -hmm. And those are cells that can be with you for the vast majority of your life. What I'm learning is that stress screws everything up. Yes. And well, think about it this way. Imagine that our two twins are both XX. So they're assigned female at birth. Yes. Which means that they would have ovaries and eggs. Yes. And possibly have birthed themselves. And possibly birth themselves. But do you know when eggs are developed, Anna? Uh, at birth. In the womb. Yes. So the stress that your birth giver is going through not only affects you, but potentially affects the next generation. Mm. And Anna, thinking back on this episode, what could probably cause people a lot of stress? Uh, racial inequality. Racial inequality, which might lead to the fact that um, peanut butter pickle mom, so despite the fact that their DNA is exactly the same, it can be expressed in a variety of different ways. For example, maybe peanut butter pickle mom, because she ate so much peanut butter, the peanut peanut hating hating gene gene wasn't unlocked. Yeah, was or was more or less locked down. The DNA when it was coiling said, eh, let's just leave that alone. Whereas fish mom, fish mom say suddenly fish mom now has to live on her and her child have to live on peanut butter. Now there's two peanut butter moms. Well, no, they can't live on fish anymore. They have to live on peanut butter then the kid of fish mom is going to experience a lot more stress from that because because mm-hmm. they did have the peanut butter hating gene. Ugh. Now, of course, like I said earlier, peanut butter hating is not a gene. Not that we know of. Not that we know of, though we have coded the entire human genome. Just because we coded it doesn't mean we know everything about it. Like- that is true, but I'm pretty sure peanut butter hating is not a gene. I feel relatively confident in that statement. Well, I feel relatively confident that it is. Anyway, for now, we're going to say peanut butter hating isn't a gene. Yet. Epigenetics are still in their early days, but evidence does show that a lot of people of color and minority populations have higher risk of various illnesses like diabetes and cardiovascular disease, even though I would like to emphasize their genes haven't necessarily changed. Their ability to express those genes has. Because of the stress that they have been under, the stress that their parents have been under and their parents before them, it can carry on for generations and generations. And the same thing happens with those weird twins, the peanut butter pickle mom twin and the fish mom twin. Their kids could have, could be entirely different people. Like, But yeah, so this goes back to the fact that our genes, like I said earlier, racism exists as a cultural concept. Our genes aren't different. But the cultural concept that we've enforced onto people has made our phenotypes different and therefore has had a major effect on the health of different individuals. The expression of genes. Which is the phenotype. Uh And that's actually turned racism 
into a medical concern. Basically, yeah, your health is at risk if you're affected by racism. Yes, your health is at a higher risk, and not just from the many causes of violence you may experience as a person of color. Um, but because of the generations of violence, violence that, and oppression. And oppression that your ancestors have gone through. And this brings us back to what we started this with before I got into all these horrible things that have happened and continue to happen, that science helped start this. The misuse of science, but also the support of the scientific community at some point, and in some places, the continued support of the scientific community has helped create this problem. Well, it's another reminder that science is a tool. And tools can be used in many different ways, and they can be used to help people or to hurt people. Well, I do want to emphasize that science isn't innocent in this scenario. Science itself is a tool, but there are communities built around science that have supported this misuse mm-hmm. throughout history. Yes. Like, there are doctors out there who are doing sterilizations mm-hmm. of minority groups. There are scientists out there that came up with the theories of eugenics. Yep. There are I don't think Hobbes counts as a scientist. He was an anthropologist, but he was a he was a privileged academic and he helped create social darwinism and the disparaging of different communities and different ways of living. Mhm. And we're seeing the consequences of what science whether as a tool being misused or as a community as a whole, has created. And in part, I think it's up to science as a community... To fix it. You can't necessarily... There's a lot going on. Yeah, you can't turn back the clock. You can't necessarily fix racism. But I think that science can play an important role in helping mediate the the physical and medical consequences. For some reason, this is like a tertiary... Headlines. Our first headline is uh, where the hosts don't bite, where the su- but the subjects just might. Our second one is humans ain't special, and our third one is get woke science. Oh right, yeah, get woke science. I forgot about get woke science. Yeah. So again, get woke science. As a community, can I say we? I'm not really a scientist, but I try. You can say we. I will be the scientist for both of us. No! I'm the truest scientist there is. Someone who knows nothing, who's going out there looking for information. It's more of a naturalist. That's, I thought those were people who don't wear clothes. Science needs to, A, step up and acknowledge the mistakes they've made more. And B, needs to work on not necessarily fixing that them, though they should play whatever role they can in fixing them. But it's a problem that's become much bigger than science. What they can do is try to help with the things that they can help with. Research into epigenetics, research into ways to better serve minority communities, research into ways to counteract the effects of epigenetics and this, this, these methylization and stress issues. So yes, get woke science. And uh, thank you for bearing with us through our... Um, evolution series. Our evolution series, which... Sadly, has to end on a sad note. You could have flipped around the order of these. No, because you need to under... We, we've we recovered... We went over all the topics that I talked about previously. Does that mean that things just go towards being sad? No, it's just that 
I wanted to talk about this because science doesn't talk about it enough. And the role that science and evolutionary theory has played in the foundation of racist ideology. That's why this one's last. The current evolution of evolution is misuse. Yes. But anyway, thank you for bearing with us through our series. And as Anna said during the break, which I hope you listen to the break and you're not a jerk who skips it all. But that's okay. I do that too. Um, please, if you're interested in learning more about this, find creators of color. There's a lot of them that are probably on the same sites as us. Um, support what groups you can. Volunteer if you don't have the financial ability to do so. Even just sharing the information. Or read. That's what I do. Libraries are free. And I, I advocate for more reading. Says Anna. <laughs> Look, I advocate for it. That doesn't mean I do it. But yes. Thank you for listening to our series. After this, we will be getting back to our normal one-off episodes. Our theme music is Rainbows by Kevin McCloyd. Our art is by our lovely Anna. Woo! I hope that you know a little more about the unknown and that it's a little less scary. Though honestly, I hope this did scare you a little bit and put a fire in your butt.